I'm Toya Nash Randall, curator and catalyst of the multimedia narrative platform Voice Vision Value. This month marks the third anniversary of Voice Vision Value, and I'm excited to announce my newest partnership with nationally respected philanthropist, community leader, and entrepreneur Shonda Smith Baker. Sponsored by Voice Vision Value, Centering Conversations is a new exclusive segment of the award-winning podcast Conversations with Shonda. We're releasing new episodes every Wednesday during Black Philanthropy Month. Be sure to check out the full suite of Centering Conversation interviews this month where Shonda talks to Angel Robertson Daniel, Tashawn Macon, Kiana Thomason, and Coneal Mack. Beginning in September, Centering Conversations will drop every third Wednesday of the month. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us. So, Coneal Mack, thank you so much for joining on Centering Conversations. This is Shonda Smith-Baker in partnership with Toya Randall and Voice Vision Value. I am so excited to talk to you this morning about your work and contribution in philanthropy. Thank you so much for joining me. Shonda, it's my pleasure to be with you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. You are welcome. So this series is really special. I started my time, my formal experience in philanthropy at the Black Women in Philanthropy Retreat in August. And so August is Black Philanthropy Month. That is when this conversation will be put out into the universe And it was such a special period of being welcomed into the space by Black women that had been leading, um, navigating, and building community with each other. And so it is just a special time to celebrate and amplify many of those voices, including yours. I'm so happy to be part of this. It's wonderful to have Um, an opportunity to lift up Black women and their vision and their values and their voices. Um, Looking forward to the time when that will be all year round, (laughs) but really glad that August is a dedicated space and a time to lift lift each other up. Thank you so much, Shonda. You have been in your role for what, two years or so? I have actually been in my role at True Cost Initiative since 2016. And Shonda, as you know, um, I came from the corporate world, right? So I was a corporate lawyer for 10 years and then um, was tapped on the shoulder by a group of philanthropists who said, we recognize that you have a unique skill set. You come from the corporate world, but yet you are a daughter of the Caribbean. You care about environmental rights and human rights. We think that that combination of skills and interests and passion would be really great to lead True Cost Initiative, which is all about highlighting the true cost, the land, life, and livelihood um, that people face um, all around the world. And they said, you know, one of the things that's missing on the environmental and human rights side sometimes is people who have an understanding and a perspective of what it's like to be on the corporate side, understand the appetite for risk, understand their compliance, their commitment to their shareholders, all of that, while having that understanding and really being able to mesh it with a true understanding of human rights and environmental rights. And they said, you can actually do that. And they want me to come and build True Cost Initiatives. I built it from scratch. And Shonda, like you, I know what it is to build something out of whole cloth. You know what I mean? And so um, it's been challenging, but that's what has also made it fun. Um, And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I've also gotten through True Cost, Shonda, to build a team that I never had when I was a corporate lawyer in corporate America. I never had the culture that I thought was appreciative and generative and uplifting. And now I get to have a team. Just so happens to be that it's a team of folks who are like-minded and diverse and committed to this work. And so that's one of the things I'm super excited to, to do. I was able to build a culture that I really want to see more of in philanthropy, but also in the world. Yeah. Wonderful. You know, that question um, makes me think in, uh, and, and perhaps I've heard or read something that you said about this, but what are the similarities between that you can draw between your time in corporate and the work in philanthropy? Shonda, that is a really good question. I must say, when I left corporate America and I came into philanthropy, I thought, oh, I'm going to take off those black suits and those pointy heels and I'm going to release. You know what I mean? It's going to be great over here. And while there are some things that have been wonderful, more freeing, Um, I have found that there are some strictures in philanthropy that are actually quite similar. This idea that you kind of need to act in silos, 
do things the way everyone has always done it, kind of philanthropy as usual. Um, certain in corporate America, you feel like you're in a bit of a box. I know I felt that way. I can't speak for others, but I definitely felt that way. And so I was surprised when I came into philanthropy and thought, oh my God, some of these same kind of corporate feeling, um, this corporate feeling ethos is in there. There's a little bit of philanthropy that feels a little bit like an industry. And so I was very, very surprised at that. I also came over to this side thinking to myself, oh my gosh, it's going to be so diverse. There's going to be so many women. There's going to be so many people from of different orientations. And I was like, hmm, not so much. <laughs> and also, and also, Shonda, the folks that I just mentioned are not running these foundations. They're not the, the key decision makers. Some of them are, but not enough of us are in those positions. So that was shocking. And so it really made me more interested in having conversations with folks like you and learning from you about your commitment and also Toya's commitment to lifting up these leaders that we do have in um, Black philanthropy, especially among women, because we're here. We're loud, we're proud, we often don't get the opportunity and um, to lead and, and shine the way we would like. But I would say those are the two things that I thought, man, similar to corporate America and somewhat disappointing. I recall the feeling when I stepped in, um, feeling, feeling sort of the same way. And I think I imagined, for sure there have been pockets, but I did imagine more time to deliberate the issues. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely um, right. Right. Sort of the R&D space. Yes. Of philanthropy. Like it, it sort of exists where you create it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I definitely expected more of an R&D space. I also expected there to be more of an appreciation for learning. Again, I, I allude to what I said earlier. There's a little bit of a um, there's been a kind of a professionalization, which it, it needs to have its own level of professionalism, Shonda, obviously, but it just becomes so and a little bit more like industry and not a lot of space for just learning and just admitting, okay, look, I don't know this. I know I've gone into meetings with other philanthropists and you can say there's this sense of, I come into this room, I have all this money and I know the answer. And very rarely do you see people say, well, you know what? I want to listen to these groups on the ground. I don't know. Let them tell us what to do. There's this sense of like, we have the money, we have the power, um, you know, and by we, I mean the majority of the folks who mm -hmm. exist in philanthropy, saying, just spending a lot of time kind of sharing their own opinions, but not listening, not unlearning. And so one of the things that I know I'm committed to within um, Shukas initiative, and I can see it in, in Toya's own philanthropy and yours as well, is I am very open to the things I don't know. And one of, I think our grantee partners find that very refreshing on so many of the calls that we have with them. The last question we ask every, on every single grantee call, Shonda, is what did we not ask you that you wish we asked you? Mm -hmm. And I, I I don't know if other philanthropists do that, but I think it's very, very important because we don't know what we don't know. And we need to kind of step back, get off this pedestal that because we are the holders of the funds, we are also the holders of the best questions. We know what to ask. And it also brings the anxiety level down of our grantee partners so that they say, look, this is a partner that truly wants to partner. They truly want to learn. And I'm going to be honest with you, Shonda, I think that that comes from my own lived experience, right? There many times when I was in corporate America, no one asked me, Camille, what is it that we never asked that you want us to ask? You were in these big meetings. I was negotiating multinational um, contracts. And, you know, I, I was and sometimes I was a lead lawyer, but many times I was not corporate America, um, even though I was doing most of the work corporate America. Um, and, you know, it, many, many times I could see that there were questions that weren't being asked. And I had to kind of raise my hand several times. And I also didn't have mentors or people in those positions or people who looked like me to say, you know what, who hasn't spoken? What have we not asked? And I think that that lived experience allows me to be the kind of leader that I am. And I think that's what those are the kind of leaders that Black women are, because we understand what it's like to be silenced we understand what it's like not to have people ask us questions. We understand that sometimes the most quiet person in the room has the best ideas, the best questions. And so we look at grantee relationships as grantee partnerships. And I think that's one of the things that makes um, Black women in philanthropy very strong. Agreed, agreed. You have touched on like three things that I want to <laughs> go down the path on, right? So one is if I stick with philanthropy as we've seen it sort of coming in and, and that evolution, you know, you made a statement um, in, in a video that I watched around known structures, the practical and the predictable, that there's sort of a, a dependence on 
being able to understand the outcome before you actually go through the process. And what you're talking about is like this, um, this inquiry that, that allows for the unpredictable to emerge, which actually is a different trust equation. That's exactly right, Shonda. I'm so glad you brought up the, 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 the word trust. I mean, that's what it comes from, right? If you are not willing to ask questions and recognize that you don't have all the answers, how is it that you're going to get these really fantastic ideas from folks, right? Also, if you don't trust that they're going to have good answers or that they're going to have something that's going to push you and push your boundaries, you'll never ask that question because you put yourself upon a pedestal. And so I think in philanthropy, there's a lot of, um, you hit the nail on the head, path dependency. We've always done it this way. There's always been a grant review process. It's always been a 60-page document that we ask the grantee partners to, to fill out, even though they should be out there in the streets. They should be out there doing the work. Of course, they, they, you know, of course they all have grant writers that can sit down and work on a grant application of 60 pages for two days no they do not but there's this sense and I know I found this even when I came into philanthropy I said to myself oh I don't know anything about philanthropy what do I know I'm just going to do what everybody's everybody seems to do and I will own the fact that when I first came in I thought you know what let me just stay the course I don't want to mess up right which is a, a something that I know as a black woman I struggle with I don't want to mess up so I'm just going to come in do what everybody else is doing stay in the lane and it took me kind of growing into my own growing into what I want philanthropy to look like to say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Who has time to who has time to write, write a grant, sixty page grant report? Who, better yet, who has time to read a sixty page grant report? <laughs> you know what I mean? And think maybe what we need to do is be open to a grant report conversation, be a grant report being a conversation for an hour and a half, or a conversation for an hour, or sitting in DC together for an hour, and that's the grant report. Maybe we need to be open to instead of grantee partners applying in January for a grant and not getting the money until the beginning of the summer. Maybe they, they apply for a grant in the first week of, in January and the second week in January, it's in their, it's in their account. If, I mean, why not, right? Why do we all, why does it always have to take so many steps? Why does it, I think part of that again, is that my own instinct of let me do what everybody has always done. Um, I don't wanna mess up, you know what I mean? And it took me, I, I must say, you know, a few years to be comfortable enough to even do something like the fifth quarter, Shonda, where with the fifth quarter, we say we're gonna step out of the traditional strictures of philanthropy and fund um, groups that are led by black, indigenous, people of color. We're going to have conversations with these folks. We're going to ask them, not only here's our theory of change, but also you're a good fit for us, but are we a good fit for you? So change in the dynamic too, you know what I mean? Where they're almost interviewing us to see if they think we're a good partner. And within a week and a half, funds are in their account because we're leading with trust. You mentioned trust earlier. And so part of it is just kind of figuring out who you are and what your strengths are and what you're, what you're um, good at, but just getting off that train of path dependency. This is what philanthropy has always looked like. This is what corporate America has always done. This is what everybody's always done. And being brave enough to be like, um, maybe that's not great. <laughs> you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Let's do something different. And also I must say having the space to fail, right? Because yeah. I mean, I think part of it too is not wanting to fail. And if you have the space and the breast and okay, I can fail at something, then you're more willing to try something new. And I recognize that we don't all have that luxury. Unfortunately, as black women, we're not given that luxury and people of color and indigenous people have of all types have faced the fact that we don't have so much of that luxury. But man, it is freeing to have the ability and the space to fail. It really breeds creativity, Shonda. So thank you for that. That was an excellent question. Can you articulate the conditions that need to be there to have the space to fail. Mm, I think that's such a that's such a good that's such a good question. Um, I would say that some of the conditions that have to be in place are the first thing would be trust, right? If you are in a professional relation with someone and you there's a baseline of trust on both sides you give each other the benefit of the doubt because you don't assume bad intentions. There's this trust that, look, I know that he or she or they are coming from a particular perspective. And so because there's that level of trust, if something hits the fan, if things don't go well, your initial mind doesn't just go to, oh my gosh, that was just a malevolent act. That was incompetency. Because it's like, no, my baseline is trust. So then instead of going to your mind going to that side, your mind goes to, okay, what were the circumstances? Was it a moment of stress? Was it 
um, circumstances that beyond their control. You know what I mean? Like when you have that trust base, you give each other that wiggle room, that freedom to breathe, that freedom to fail. You know what I mean? So I think trust is a really big part of it. I think an, another thing that allows you to embrace this space of being able to fail is accountability, right? So I think if you're dealing with people on both sides who not, who feel accountable to themselves, hold themselves to a high standard and feel accountable to, to, to each other, then even if there's a failure, even a massive failure, Shonda, because you know that there's a sense of accountability, you know you're not dealing with somebody who's going to shirk responsibility. They're going to put up their hand and be like, oh, I failed. And that happened. And once that happens, it frees both of you up to have a, a meaningful conversation and to dissect what happened. You know what I mean? So there's trust. Um, there's also accountability. I think those are the two things that I think are really, really essential. And then I think the third thing I would say is you need two parties in the relationship, the relationship who have an appreciation of failure as an opportunity for learning. I think if one party sees failure as the end and one party sees failure as just an opportunity to learn and be better, you're not real aligned. But if both parties kind of have a sense that, look, failure is just an opportunity to be better than it were two days ago, right. one hour ago, it makes again that space for it because like we know it, 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 it's not that bad <laughs> you know what I mean yeah, yeah. It's, failure is just a way of failure is just a way of fire kind of burnishing us and making sure that we kind of scrape the, the bits off and that we're shiny you know what I mean and so it takes a little bit of work to get shiny right you really got to rub you got to fail at some stuff some stuff's going to flake off <laughs> you know what I mean and so when yeah I think I think those are my three elements I, I hope that's is a good enough no, answer really to thinking about this off the fly yeah, no, that's good. That's, you know, some, someone sees failure as the end. And, and for some of us, we see it as the beginning. It just didn't work. <laughs> and now it's the beginning of a new idea or you build from what, what you just learned from. And so it really goes with that. So I'm just going to talk a, a little bit down this path and then we'll go to what your, what your work is. But you said it took you a couple of years to sort of get um, to move away from sort of the predictable um, path in the word. There is a, my word, a conditioning that we have as Black women when we come into space and we are measuring our ability, I would say, to, to lead in our full voice. Mm. Mm. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. But like what... <laughs> what was happening in that two years and if you could go back or if you can share because there'll be women of color and and others listening that um are, are new in roles or perhaps knowing that they're hedging on their own voice being heard right Mm, mm. Oh my gosh, Shonda, that is a brilliant question. Um, and I don't think I've actually even taken the time to kind of process it. So thank you for the opportunity to do that. I'd start by saying I would go back and tell Camille two years in, this is, you know, or maybe a year in, but Camille, just because it was done a certain way before, bef before you were, doesn't mean it was the right way. <laughs> it doesn't mean it was the best way. Um, that the way it was done before was just BC, just before Keneal, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's right, because I am, I, I, would, I would tell, I would tell that Keneal that in the time of BC, your uniqueness wasn't present, your magic wasn't present. And if you can't, I, I must say, Sean, I'm going to be really honest with you. I'm not sure if I even knew my own magic. I even came into the, I would say even until the second year in this job, I wasn't even completely sure I could do it. Because I was like, I can't believe they picked me up corporate America for 10 years, a lawyer. I know nothing about philanthropy. I don't have some kind of fancy NYU degree in public health or some of the traditional degrees that people tend to have when they go into philanthropy. I was a corporate lawyer. You know what I mean? I came in thinking, oh my gosh, people are going to be cynical about my contributions. They're going to be like, oh, what does a corporate lawyer know about corporate accountability? She's on the wrong side. And I, so I think some of that kind of self-doubt held me back. So I would tell Camille, A, Anything before you was BC, before Camille. Don't worry about before Camille. Think about, embrace and think about your magic going forward, right? Don't worry about BC time. Um, I would also tell, tell um, remind myself that I feel like Chanda, I wasted so much time not having enough confidence to do things differently. And I, and I must say, once I got the confidence and I tried something new and I failed and I was confident at doing something new and, and failing, it just, it kept growing from there. It just, it, things just happened. And all, it was just, it was a pivot point where I just needed, I just needed to be like, wait a minute, these people plucked me out of 
corporate America and brought me over here because they believed in me. They saw something in me. And why? And then I have to say to myself, why is it that they believed in me, but I don't believe in me? Mm. I mean, you know what I mean? I would also say that allies are really important. My own, the folks who I report to and, and my donors, have been some of my have been tremendous allies. I remember um, one of them saying to me, they actually said to me, and I didn't even listen. They said, Anil, they literally said to me, don't feel like you have to do it the way it's always been done. Shonda, did I listen? No, because I didn't want to fail. I was like, okay, I know what you're saying, but what you're really saying is I should do it. And then, that, and then now that I look back, I was like, no, they gave me the freedom. But Shonda, unless you accept that freedom in yourself and you have that confidence, even when people tell you you have the freedom, you're your own worst enemy. So I would tell Kanil, not mm-hmm. only forget about BC, but also you have allies around you who want you. You also have people who may not want you to succeed, but many of us have so many allies That's of right. all orientations, colors, background, because I will name that, um, who want you to succeed and just listen to them. And if there's a moment where you say, wait a minute, are they believing in me more than I believe in myself? That needs to be a pivot point for you. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm also smiling because the um the BC language. So Patrice Wellerford, that was on my team at the foundation, she would say BC like before Sharna. <laughs> so it's like this really relatable point. She's like, well, that was BC, <laughs> and I'm like, so we got that in common, and it's it's so great to to think about that. And and you know, from my my own lessons is that. You know, when I have moved and I've been told no, it just gets me to a better yes. Ah, I love that. A better yes. I've never thought about it that way, but yes, that is it. A a better yes. You know what I mean? It it surpasses, it surpasses even what it is that you were asking for where you heard the no, right? Is that what I'm going to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that's what you're saying, right? Sometimes it's just like, oh, they said no to B, but it made room for it. C D E F G H I J K. You know what I mean? It was it just yeah. mind blowing. I might whatever I, I was aiming for was too low, and it, it, it got in, it got interrupted for a bigger, better yes for so a bigger purpose. I see the nose that way. The other thing that you touched on while we were talking was sponsorship and coaching, and I know that you were coached by Eva. Eva, Eva, Eva. Love you. Let's talk about Eva because I met Eva and I had a chance to spend time with her. But I know so many amazing women that have experienced her as a coach. Mm. And so many times I think we don't think generally, I'm generalizing about getting and investing in executive coaches. But I, I mean, Eva's testimony um, has produced many, many beautiful fruits um, and, and a beautiful community of women that are connected to her. And so I want to just give you a moment to talk about Eva and, and, what, and what that has brought to you. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if there are enough moments. We may not have enough time in this conversation for it, but I'll, I'll touch on two things that Eva has been um, so instrumental in for me. One of the things that Eva has taught me is that really to embrace my own uniqueness. I think it's really easy. And I'm, I'm all about Black Girl Magic. I believe in Black Girl Magic. I totally believe in it. At the same time, I think if you, do, if you just kind of leave it at just the magic and you focus on magic, it just seems like a little bit of luck. You know what I mean? But just Eva has taught me that there's something innate and beautiful and, and just that, that only, only I can possess. It doesn't mean that I'm better than anyone, but there's something that only I possess. And because I have that, I've internalized that from Eva and her coaching, then every interaction I have with her is tailored to the things that only I can uniquely uniquely do. I'll give you an example because you're talking about growing your own team and your own transitions. Um, One of the things that I've learned with Eva is that my team has grown, I think maybe to twice its size since I've been coached by Eva. And at each point, I've been coached with her about, you know, how to approach and all of that. And what I've learned from Eva is it, it's, we have, there are all these self-help books out there that telling you, you know, like, grow the skills you're not good at and, you know, work on the, your, your pain points. Eva is really, at least to me, about, look, Camille, there's something that you are just brilliant at, unique at. Surround yourself with a team of people who are better at the things that you're not so great at. So you can focus on the unique Camille things, that magic, you know what I mean? And so she has a clarity of purpose. She has a kindness and she also just 
knows what it is that we as Black women need to hear <laughs> about how to lead. You know what I mean? Shonda, I don't have time to be an expert on Excel, but you know what I can do? I know how to hire well, so I can hire a team that is excellent on that, who can provide me with the information and the tools, and I can have my own basic knowledge so that when it is that I need to make a decision, I can know that the numbers are right because I have a team of many of whom love Excel and they love that and they thrive at that. So I can be doing the visionary and creative and strategic leadership that I am best purpose to do. It doesn't mean that I can't learn those things and excel at that, but is that the highest utility of my time? And so Eva has just given me that clarity so that even when I hire, when I kind of organize my day, I'm just thinking, what are the things? What are the four things that only Camille can do today? When I'm hiring, what are the things that somebody else on my team can do so that I can be the transformational visionary leader that I need to be? And once I have that clarity, Eva has just made my life so much easier. You know what I mean? There are times when I'm just in the kitchen making a decision and I'm talking even, even about dinner. What is the thing that I'm really good at making? I'm not going to make sure I'm not that good at, Chando. I love I'm it. I'm going to purchase that on purple carrot or blue apron or whatever. But I am going to make the things that I know that my family needs that I'm good at making, you know? The second thing that I would say um, about Eva is one in the very first session she had, she was like, Camille, do you know that all these people, you know, these they own these big companies, the Googles, the Teslas, whatever. All of these people who you think just woke up one day and they were just brilliant and they just had all the skills, whatever. All of them have coaches. And I said, what? She said, all of them have coaches. And I said, no. And she said, Camille, all of them have coaches. But what I don't understand is why there's so many Black women who either they think, oh my gosh, let me just save a little bit and let me not invest in the coaching. Because yeah, I can, I, can, I can do it by the pull myself up by my own bootstraps and just kind of depend on friends and mentors or whatever, which is all very important. That's not coaching though. That is very different from executive coaching. And I know you do your own executive coaching and you have um, brilliance and and in your own guidance and how you, you, you train folks yourself, Shonda, so you can relate to this. And so I, Eva has made me recognize, I, it will always be a budget item for me, no matter what organization I work for, executive coaching is critical because this, because I'm, I'm leading an organization. I want to lead with compassion. I want to lead with skill. I want to lead with efficiency. I want to be creative. I want to be visionary. But it doesn't mean that I don't need someone by my side saying, you know, think this way, reorient, be willing to pivot. Because if the folks at the head of um, Google and, 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 and Tesla and the, all these startups have, have that resource, why is it that I, as a, a Black woman, cannot have that? That's right. When you move into leadership roles, you don't often hear the whole truth. Mm. Sometimes mm-hmm. you hear it other ways. Sometimes you hear it through whispers <laughs> and or, or passive passive language. But to have someone that can mirror back to you what you are saying, how you are showing up, and to push you to have balance. Um, and perspective, I think is really important, especially as you ascend into um, roles. I think it's important at every level, by the way. I completely agree with you, Shonda. And, you know, this question is not a, the the response I'm going to give now is not about being fear of failing, but I will say one of the best ways Black women can have the space to fail, but also be successful and fail less is to get coaches who help us have those success moments, right? get a coach get someone who can get who has seen it all who has heard it all who's been in the rooms in rooms above you and rooms below you who will tell you the truth the unvarnished truth that's something Eva does too she will just call me on my bs and just be like honey oh no you know I, I showed her something she's like oh you're giving that away, away for free get paid for that <laughs> you know what I mean like it, it's just like of course you're worth it go do it you know what I mean you need somebody in your who is not just kind of you know I'm not talking about a hype person I'm talking about a coach who understands your skill set, who understands your vision for yourself, your professional vision, who understands also your personal vision. So we spend most of our time at work, Shonda, right? So those things have to be aligned and balanced. And so when you have a coach who understands all of those things, who has done that analysis with you, as Eva has done with me over the past year and a half, she could rattle off to you, know, what my dreams and hopes are for my family, for my work. She could rattle it all off to you because she knows it. And because she knows it, she can guide me and coach me on every professional decision in a way that is holistic, that is intersectional, you know what I mean? That is that is guided by truth about who she knows, 
who she knows I am and how I want to show up in the world. I think coaching is the best thing, the best thing that um, Black women leaders at any level could invest in. I love it. I wish that everyone listening could see Camille's face talking about Eva because there is an affection and an appreciation um, there. And these roles can be hard and isolating. And yes. um, to, to have someone that you know, you know, a champion of your success does not mean someone that is agreeable. <laughs> it means someone that is championing your success, mm. being honest and all of those things. So I am so glad that you have that experience and the support to have her um, as, as, as a guide for you in your career. Oh, thank you so much, Shonda. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to her. And I'm also grateful to you, Shonda, for making space to lift someone up. We don't always give people their flowers, you know what I mean? And so Eva deserves all the flowers. Um, she has a booked calendar because I, I, I think she's in high demand, but that is for a reason. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, I hear her name across the country. So uh, Eva, thank you for your magic that you've been sprinkling across this country and the difference making um, that you have had. So let's talk about True Cost Initiative. So you came to start it? I did. So True Cost Initiative is in the field of philanthropy. And what we're trying to do, it's, it's all in the name, uh, True Cost Initiative. We seek to increase corporate accountability and strong legal systems because the way the world is situated right now, Shonda, the true cost to land, the true cost to livelihood, and the true cost to life is being born by people all around the world and corporations are just profiting, right? And there's a dynamic of profit over people. So we said, no, 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 no. Let's lift up and elevate and lift up the voices of those who are speaking the truth, speaking truth to power, who are saying, look, this is what this corporation has done to our water. This is what they promised, but this is what they did. You know what I mean? And this is not on some kind of anti-corporate um, platform. That's not it. It's just about speaking the truth about who who is internalizing these costs. Unfortunately, corporations are externalizing all their costs on people, on the environment, into our water. And so one of the things that's really, um, what that attracted me to this role is to build an organization, not only around the idea of true costs, but also to build an organization that's going to move funds and support and guidance and expertise to those folks who are actually telling the truth about who's bearing the true costs. Um, I've had folks say, oh my gosh, true costs, you know, is that about, you know, True cost economics, but I, I would, there's a distinction. True cost economics, Shonda, as you well know, typically focuses on including the cost of negative externalities into the price of goods and services. What we're focusing on saying, we're focusing on the true cost of land, life, and livelihood, and how those true costs should drive better corporate accountability, better corporate behavior in the global economy, right? So we're not talking about some ethereal, um, theoretic economic, then we're talking about true costs that we see in land, that we see in life, that we see in livelihood all around the world. So that's that's the that was that's the goal of true costs. Yeah. Can you contextualize what that means? So what does it mean in land? In land, what it means is so let's think about this movement to the green economy, right? Which everybody's talking about. Um, some of the things that are going to be needed for this move to the green economy, lithium cobalt, the things that go into our cell phone, the things that go into EV electric vehicles. But many of those, I'm going to call them resources, many of those resources sit on lands that are traditionally indigenous people's lands. Many of those resources sit on lands that are populated by uh, populations that are already vulnerable, whether they don't have formal land tenure to their land. There's some of those minerals and resources sit on land that is populated by folks who are simply trying to use their land to feed their families, send their children to school. But yet all around the world, there are land grabs, some secret, some not so secret, where corporations take lands and, you know, whether they do it by, they get the stamp of approval from governments. And this, this happens in, you know, in, 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 on the continent of Africa, this happens in South America, this happens in the Caribbean, or sometimes more with much more of a violative approach where land is just taken from folks because there, there's violence involved on um, the people who go out with guns and take land from people, especially indigenous people who are really suffering right now because again, that move to the global, the green economy, people are out there, you know, it's not my terminology, but I've heard the terminology sacrifice zones being used because it's talking to the, talking about the fact that a lot of the lands and the resources that indigenous people sit on is exactly what's going to be, get, um, get sacrificed for the benefit of all of these, these, um, 
transition minerals. At what, co- at what cost? That's a cost to land. That's a cost to livelihood. You know what I mean? And so is there a point at which we stand up and say, no, 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 wait, that is too much of a cost. You know what I mean? When you when this land is taken, it has an effect on um, the climate. It has an effect on people's agrarian lifestyle. It has an effect on people who are have a strong connection to land because of their cultural and indigenous um, knowledge and in cultural heritage. So that's just one example, Shanda. I hope that's a, a broad enough example for you. Where land, livelihood, and 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 uh, and life. One sad development is that now there's so many human rights defender awards. Why? A lot of those awards are being given to people who posthumously because they've already passed away but also some of these folks when they get this award it at least gives them the shelter of public recognition to help protect their lives because when they're out on the streets whether it's in you know Colombia whether it's in Suriname Guyana in you know, parts of Kenya and they're being attacked their family members are being attacked because they're speaking too loudly and pushing back on corporate encroachment on their land their lives are at stake mm-hmm. you know what I mean and so there are folks who have actually, where the publicity of being a human rights defender standing on the front lines has actually helped them stay alive. That tells you about the level of harm and violation that corporations are inflicting on people and their well-being. And, and again, this is just because we're living in a world standard where profit is being prioritized over people. And we need to write that. We need to, to resource people and movements in a way that we can have much more accountability um, for corporations. We also need to invest in some of these groups, they use litigation, they use um, policy, because it's one thing to kind of support groups on the ground, but they need to be able to sue, they need to be able to have science and technology to push back to say, oh, you send us that report? We have our own report about what has happened to our water because of that leaching from your petrochemical plants. You know what I mean? One of the projects we've supported is the Descendants Project in Louisiana, that they're one of our grantee partners um, for the fifth quarter, because we have a real, real appreciation for the amazing work and that Joe and um, Joy Banner are doing, standing on the front lines and saying, look, we need to protect our historical land. We need to protect it from um, encroachment, from corporations who are only acting in their own interests and not even not recognizing the spiritual and the traditional and historic relevance that land has for um, Black people in Louisiana, but instead just prioritizing profit over people. When I think about the work these days, there has been sort of a comparison, and I'm going to try and articulate this, you know, George Floyd and racial justice and climate and and the work that you're talking about, that that sometimes they are positioned as an either or proposition. That you're either working on racial justice and you're doing this work or you're working on this, or now people are focusing on this, they're moving away from that. Like, I'm sure that you hear that. I imagine that you hear that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm making Mm -hmm. an assumption here, but like, Mm -hmm. can we talk about either the positionality of that? Is it one thing or the other? Is it both? And like, how should we be thinking about that? I think it's like, I think you articulated the question very well. Um, and let me know if when I'm answering it, I'm I'm doing it just giving you an answer that does it justice. So it's definitely not either or. We don't live in an either or society, right? So when I wake up in the morning, I am the executive director of True Cost Initiative. I am a former lawyer who worked in corporate America, which has its own issues with white supremacy, um, discrimination against women, discrimination of people from different faiths, etc. just general corporate world. I also wake up um, as the ED of an organization in a field, philanthropy, which is predominantly white. I also wake up in a field, philanthropy, which was very vocal two years ago, (laughs) two to three years ago about Black squares and George Floyd and racial justice, but now is a little bit more quiet. I don't wake up in a world where I am only one thing. So what if I don't wake up in it, just, just on a very personal, if I don't wake up in a world where I am only one thing, why is it that we think that philanthropy, which is aimed at ameliorating, ameliorating so many of the ills in this world, can only do one thing. You can only support children's health, education, um, racial justice. You have to only be in a silo. No, we, even as human beings, we don't wake up as one thing. There's no way that we can solve all these systemic complicated issues and approach it only with one hat. And that's one of the reasons, Shonda, I'll go back to, we really got very, very committed to elevating this idea of a fifth quarter, an additional quarter that we add to the year. And it's not a quarter 
the year only has four quarters, but we said, let's go through a fifth quarter. It was actually um, inspired by N.K. Jemison's book, The Fifth Season, because that is what I had to turn to, Shonda. That's what I had to turn to during the, the George Floyd um, awakening that it had in, in America, because there were weeks on end where I just, I couldn't, I couldn't work. I couldn't think. I was crying. I was depressed. You know what I mean? I, one night, my um, husband reminds me that I woke up and I was just shaking and nodding and saying, they don't want us here. They don't want us here. That, I mean, there is harm that has been done to us emotionally as people of color, as women of color in this country. And so I would just go back to the fact that if I don't wake up with one identity, I don't know how an effective philanthropy can say that they're only there. It doesn't mean that you're doing mission creep or you don't have a mission or a vision, but it means that you cannot have, you cannot have a hat that keeps you only wearing that hat. You, there, there are times where you're going to have to be flexible. You're going to have to think intersectionally. You're going to have to think broadly. And so with our fifth quarter program, we're supporting work that holds corporations accountable, protects the environment through law and science, advocates that climate justice is racial justice and racial justice is climate justice. We actively address disparities in community of color. Um, we focus on systems change that transcends national boundaries. And then we highlight resource gaps and systems of oppression. Now, I think there are folks who'd hear us say that and be like, wait a minute, I thought these guys work in corporate accountability. But Chanda, is there anything that I just listed that is not connected to corporate accountability? Yeah, no. yeah. Isn't it corporations who need to be held accountable? Isn't it corporations who use environment environmental law and other types of law and science in a way that is abusive to people's land life and environment um isn't it corporations who have lied to us over the years there have been so many reports about how much so much how much these corporations knew years decades ago about the impact that we'd be facing now but they kept it under wraps right and so isn't it the same corporations who have entrenched themselves in supporting um groups and policies and political leaders who are um, moving us towards a direction of, of racial injustice? Isn't it the same corporations who acting on communities that are the most weak and the most vulnerable because they don't have land tenure? You know what I mean? When you're a big corporation and you decide, okay, I'm going to take this land in Kenya. Oh, because it's open. Nobody owns it, of course. I'm just putting those in quotation marks. A lot of that agrarian land tends to be um, farmed by women, right? When you take a woman who are oh, dis disproportionately poor, Women with, with children, many of their partners have gone to, to work elsewhere. They end up with a lot of gender-based violence. You cannot separate all these things. So while I am very committed, I'm saying like, look, we can't, we can't be all things, but we should know all things. We should fund in a way that reflects the fact that we are knowledgeable of the intersections of what it is, how what it is that I do intersects with what it is that you do. And so I am a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that approach, Shonda. Who are you funding and what is your process? Because you have a rolling cycle, right? Like what is the fifth quarter? Like there's, there's only four. So what explicitly is the fifth quarter? I appreciate that question so much. Only four. But when we get creative and when we decide we need to meet the moment, Sometimes we come up with new things, right? So instead of the four that are typical based on a fiscal year, because we're, we're, we're philanthropy and we tend to operate in a way that's more consistent with corporate America, the fifth quarter is a quarter that runs through the entire year, right? So you have your traditional quarters and then the fifth quarter is like, what? we don't care about quarters. It's, it's just, it's just throughout the entire year. You come, we, we, don't, we see you, you see us. You think we're a good fit for you. Are you working on these intersectional issues that I just talked about? We have a conversation with us for an hour and a half. Um, no less than $25,000. You do need to be a group that's led by Black, Indigenous, or people of color. We're going to lead with trust. We're a relation-based, um, relation-first organization. And so we move money to you to and just trust that you're going to go, go out there and do incredible work. It doesn't mean we don't do our due diligence, but it means that we don't let you sit for three months while we do that due diligence. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, fair. Instead, we make sure the due diligence on our part is very quick right? So that all you have to do is really come and tell us what it is, what changes are you looking for in the world? Are you somewhat aligned with some of the things and the, 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 the themes that I, I laid out earlier? And one of the biggest questions, Shonda, is you know what it is that we're about, but not only are you a good fit for us, but are we a good fit for groups? We literally say to them, are we a good fit for you? Again, changing that dynamic, right? We live in, in the philanthropic world is so much of it is about, well, these is, this is our theory of change and you need to fit into this or you won't be given a grant. First thing, we believe that our theory of change is less important than that of our grantee partners. Yes, we have our two focus areas, corporate accountability and strong legal systems, but our grantee partners know more than we do. 
when we're sitting in our with our nice computers and we work in philanthropy. Yeah. It is the people, the women, um, the people of color, the indigenous people um, who are out there on the front lines, you know, making things happen because they're moving with their bodies. They're putting their bodies on the line. They're putting their their families on the line. Many of them are doing this work. They're volunteering it with it. You know, they're not getting paid for it. And so we need to step out of the way and lead with trust, right? Does it mean that sometimes we we we, we make we, we make a bad call? Yeah, but guess what? I'm okay with failing and I'm okay with leading with trust because we don't do enough of that in philanthropy. And so um that's that's the approach of the fifth quarter. You know what I mean? Create a whole new quarter and make it responsive to what people need. There we our traditional grant making portfolio still operates on that portfolio because it's really hard to process grants throughout the year we only have a team of six but we make space in a dedicated fifth quarter program with a dedicated budget that says look if we see a group that is moving in these ways and support working working on these intersectional issues we're going to meet with them for an hour an hour and a half we're going to move money to them in a week and we're going to leave this trust done i love all of that and i think of a theory of change in philanthropy an extension of that institution's thinking Right. That you're basically granting people to do the work that you've thought of. Right. Versus a theory of philanthropy that says we want to accomplish this and we trust your process to get in there. We both agree that we need to to eradicate this thing. Right. Like we agree to that, but we're open to how you arrive there. You want to do it. We just want the outcome. But like help us. Help us expand the approaches and the strategies because you know what might work in your community, which might be different. Exactly, Exactly, Shonda. I couldn't say it more beautifully. That is exactly it. That's exactly it. I used to be a nonprofit CEO and I remember someone asking me like, you know, what's sort of keeping you up at night? And I said, you know, we had moved to a phase and in, in, I think we've moved out of it a little bit in the cycle of all things, but that between government contracts and the way in which philanthropy was working at the time, we were basically an extension of their thinking. Mm. And so what does it mean to become an extension of someone else's thinking? It means your thinking gets suppressed. Mm-hmm. So I'm in an organization known to be innovative and creative, and I'm asking people what they think, and they're repeating what the funder wants, what the government contract states, and I can't get them to express what they are seeing, what they experience in their own lived life, right? What they know because I know their brilliance, and I'm like my great my my biggest and organizational challenge is to unleash the brilliance that exists within this organization and unlock them from other people's thinking so that they can tap into their own. Mm, I love that so much. I love that so much. Chanda, I mean, it it, it goes to the, the, the question, the, the, the thinking that I mentioned earlier is that one of the most fruitful questions we ask on our grant review calls, and by the way, our grant review calls are mostly us listening, right? We tell the grantee partners, you come with your agenda. Tell us what you want to tell us. (laughs) You know what I mean? Is what have we not asked you? And Shonda, sometimes what they tell us in in those last 15 minutes is way more interesting than what they told us for the previous 45 minutes. Because at that point, they're like, wait a minute, these folks really want to hear from us? You know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like, it's, it's like they've been shackled by the strictures of philanthropy that have said, no, 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 no. What, what do you need to hear in order to fund us? And we have to be like, no, 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 no. We're going to fund you, but just, just tell me the truth. What, what do you, just tell us the truth. And it's, it's like, it's like an unlearning for them too, right? Because if right. we, if there's a programming that has happened and we almost, all of us, us on the funder side, I suspect on some of the grantee partner side too, because of funders, have been programmed so that our theory of change is trumping their own because they're like, this is the game I need to play to get that funding. If they say that they need marshmallows to be activism, you know, to to, to support the chocolate industry, I mean, they, they will do it, write a grant. It, they, and that's just, that's bizarre. You know what I mean? It is bizarre and it's so upsetting. So I can understand why that kept you up at night. I, I love sort of the theme that's threading through this conversation of unlearning, right? The the layers of unlearning from 
you coming from corporate to coming in this space to having to sort of unlearn, right? Like I'm in this place of like, I'm retiring some things that I don't want to do no more. (laughs) And I'm rewiring, I'm putting some things together that create new pathways. And so when I think about the unlearning, right, the, the things that we were conditioned to do and be as Black women, to say that that conditioning was to keep us in a place that we don't belong, right? Yes. To the unlearning of the predictable, um, the path dependency, the predictability that we know is like institutionally what they're saying but it doesn't feel right. It feels misaligned. And so I love this sort of this, this unlearning and it, it's sort of leading me to maybe a final question here or two, mm-hmm. which is maybe going back to the beginning of this conversation and, and asking like, who do you have to be in this work? When I think about that question, especially within the voice, vision, value framework, and I think about the multiple hats that we wear, there was a point where I felt like I had to be everything to everyone. Like, I just feel like it's evolved through me as I've matured into leadership. Like, I feel like who I have to be in the work is true to myself and true to community. Like, that, that's who mm-hmm. I feel like I need to be at this point. I think that as we give ourselves permission to be more of ourselves, we show up bigger and bolder and more courageous. And this for me is what this vision that Toya has laid out is not only how do we celebrate Black women leading in philanthropy, how do we document Mm. our leadership and our contribution because it has been undertold stories that have been undertold in every way of our history, but also how do we how do we mirror back the brilliance so that we can basically just lead more boldly in our next chapter as we get and witness it? And so that that's what I would offer is like I just feel get like it. I just need to be me. Like I don't even have yes. to be profound other than yeah. I just need to be me. Period <laughs> with a T. Period. <laughs> Okay, that needs to be on the future. Me, period. <laughs> there are probably three things, three ways in which I ha- I feel like I have to show up every day. Um, the first is I have to show up in a way that would, and people's families look different and their situation looks different, but I, I would name, I want to show up in a way that my four-year-old and my 17-year-old would be proud. If they could be a fly on the wall and watch me work all day, they would say, that's my mom. And she, she's thriving and failing and, crying and smiling all in one day and she's she's getting it done yeah I want I have to show up in a way that even when they can't see me if they could they would be super proud because I feel I'm I'm on this earth to I have two girls who I want to go on to be brilliant I want them to be the Shandas in the future and in order for that they, they need a mom who is out there being her authentic self so I, the first thing is I have to be somebody who my my, my two girls would be proud of the second thing is I call it the three C's I have to be courageous, I have to be creative, and I have to be celebratory. Courageous, and that doesn't mean I'm always strong. Courageous means that there are times I have to be courageous sometimes to cry. Courageous enough to cry and let people see me crying because it's that's important. I have to be creative because that's part of who I am. You see me in this um this co- this this colorful shiny shirt. In, in a corporate America I'd never wear this, right? But in the world where I am now, I'm gonna show up in the, the color and the splendor and the glory of the things that I enjoy, you know what I mean? Because that's who I am. So I have to be a creative, not only what I wear and who I show up, but how I engage with my team. And I have to be celebratory. I don't think I did enough of this. I remember the first three years of just like grind, grind, grind. I have to build this NGO and try and all these grantee partners and meet everybody. And it wasn't until like the end of year four, three when I had to be like, wait a minute, yay me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's yay, right. Yay. Yay, people on my team. Yay, Toya. Yay, you know, just to be like, just embrace that 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 ethos and that sense of celebration. So being, you know, courageous, creative, and celebratory. And then just being, I loved your word, just be bold. 
I just have to show up bold every single day, bold enough to accept my mistakes, bold enough to believe that I've been the creator of great ideas and I'll be the creator of more great ideas in the in the future. Um, bold enough to think outside of the box, to remake the box. You know what I mean? Forget the box, create a circle, create a heart, just bold enough to <laughs> forget the box. You know what I mean? And so that's that's probably what I would say. Shanda, you've had an illustrious career before this interview. I did quite a bit on research. You've had your podcast. And I know one of the things that I struggle with as a, um, a woman of color, I know the head of an organization, former corporate lawyer, is just being comfortable with pivoting, being comfortable with saying that the space in which I was in, I've outgrown it. I need something new. And I've seen you pivot in so many ways and pivot to something greater and better what would you say to folks like myself who look to you and are trying to also teach their daughters and their sons about embracing the pivot how did you do it and what's the key to embracing that pivot man that is that okay good question and I was actually thinking about that when you responded about your four and your 17 year old daughters and I was thinking about what an amazing gift because we, we, me, and many of us women can hide parts of ourselves that we don't often show the struggle and the vulnerable to our kids, right? To let them see all of the layers, I think is such a beautiful gift so that they can embrace all of their layers. When I think about the pivots that I've made, even when I have been you know, taking leaps of faith, which all of them have been in, in so many ways, being able to say like, part of me exploring me is making sure that I don't get stuck in places that feel too comfortable. It is not the absence of fear, right? To your point for me to make the step, it's actually all in fear that it, it is in faith that I can make a step because I believe that I am smart enough, strategic enough, resourced enough, bold enough to make what I'm envisioning be true, mm. right? And even in the failures in it, I will be okay. And I think that um, I have learned from this pressure of perfection that is a stronghold that I don't want to live under and like false expectation, right? And so even in my last pivot, it's like, man, if I leave, there's going to be people in community that are going to be disappointed and blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. That held me for a while. First of all, I'm like, how do I know, right? Like I had to really check my own excuse making mm -hmm. around that. And so I really believe in leadership moving so other people can lead, mm. right? I know that my gift is not to sustain work, but to create it. So if I feel like I'm creatively tapped out, then I know I need to find something new to be creative with. I'm in a season of many transitions, including um, my youngest son turning 18 and so that was my last day of work on June 15th was his 18th birthday. Oh my gosh. So I have been parenting my entire adult life since I was, you know, early twenties. And so as a result of that, I have been working and organizing around kids in, in the K-12 system. That's right. So he graduated from, from high school. He's 18 years old. And I'm always a mom. I'm always on call. But the way that it looks is, is different. Yes. And so for me, it's what does the next level of liberation in my life look like? And how am I going to fully embrace it? And for me, it meant I need to do something new. I love that. The next level of liberation. Wow. Thank you for that answer. Yeah. Congratulations on the graduation of your son and congratulations on just embracing pivot and showing us how to do those kind of pivots with grace and so much kindness and openness Shanda you are an inspiration you're interviewing me but man I'm, I'm gonna need to take notes from from all of this <laughs> I am so grateful that you made time for me it's an honor to to uh, be in your presence
Thank you so much. And I just love getting to spend this time with you. Thank you for being and centering conversations and True Cross initiatives and all of the things that we know we did not get to. I thank you for <laughs> your voice and for your vision, for your boldness, and certainly for the value that you bring to this amazing team that you talked about and to all the spaces that, that you enter. Um, I am grateful and, and thankful for your leadership. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us.